0: Hello and welcome to the Lawyer Podcast. I'm Catherine Griffiths, editor of The Lawyer.
1: And I'm Matt Byrne, deputy editor. We'll be talking about what we're seeing in the commercial legal market uh, over the last few weeks and what we think will be coming down the tracks.
0: In the podcast this week, the coronavirus, US financials, and what general counsel think about sustainability. First, the coronavirus. Now, as at the end of February, the virus had claimed a total of 2,700 lives in China, and there were sudden outbreaks in Europe, with 400 cases confirmed in Italy. And there's already been a fall in the global stock markets on the back of the epidemics. Shares in travel and leisure companies particularly have been down. um, And inevitably, there's concern about the impact on global business, because China is such a source of manufactured components.
1: So it's, it's clearly a massive issue, Kat. Have there been any signs so far from firms about their level of concern?
0: We're not actually picking up any sense of panic from law firms, uh, but assuming, and big fingers crossed, that the spread of the virus is contained, um, it's really going to have an impact on professional firms with clients and business across Asian jurisdictions in particular. Um, but, you know... Actually, if you look wider, uh, the recent news actually hides a slowdown in China uh, in general.
1: Meaning Well,
0: um, so Cadwallader and Winston-Straunch uh, closed in China recently. And there's some recent data that's just come out from SSQ, the recruiters, that the number of bilateral hires made by international firms reached the lowest level in the uh, in China for four years last year. And actually, I mean, this is borne out by our own research, which shows that the top twenty major international firms with presences in, in Asia, half of them, made up just one lawyer or none to partner in China across the whole second half of the last decade.
1: So basically, they were they were already shifting the emphasis of their investments away from China before the coronavirus. Yeah, I was even yeah, of. no,
0: definitely. I mean, there's there's always been caution about China and how difficult it is to make a profit there. Uh, but, you know, business and confidence in Ch- in about growth in China has been really low for some time. Mm. But clearly, the coronavirus is going to put pay to any green shoots of law firm investment for the foreseeable future.
1: Well, talking of international firms investments overseas, and you mentioned a couple of U.S. firms. Can, uh, it is, of course, financial season for U.S. firms and obviously their performance in London will be closely watched, not just by us but by their local rivals and there's a bit of a mixed picture emerging uh, with some standout results. We've just had Debovoise this week posting another set of record results globally. They're up to a billion and in London they've just posted just above $150 million in what is of course its second largest office after New
0: York. To be fair, Devois doesn't have that many offices in uh, outside New York, right? It's so they kind of not the most global <laughs> offer. So. Yeah, they haven't got a huge <laughs> footprint, so um, it's a small model. It, so, it, yeah. It's
1: neat. It's uh, perfectly formed, yeah. indeed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting the history there. Um, the, the 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 managing partner or presiding partner, is you known, Mike Blair, will stress the performance of the firm over the past few years, um, and that is important not just from a point of view of revenues, but culturally they're one of the few remaining pure lockstep firms out there. And that's relevant because any recruiter is going to tell you it can be a bit of a nightmare uh, recruiting for Debovois. They're hamstrung by the lockstep in a way that the likes of Kirkland aren't they'll say they'll deny that but they are
0: also to put this in a bit of real world perspective Debra Voice's average profit per partner last year was oh just that mere 3.7 million dollars so do forgive me if my heart does not bleed for Debra Voice's recruitment problems but um but actually staying within the law bubble Uh, Their results, what does that mean? Does does, does it give us some breathing space strategically?
1: For Temple Boys, I'd say so, yeah. I mean, as I say, they'd point to the growth in London over the last four or five years, there's no doubt about that. And interestingly, the lockstep issue cropped up recently um, at the firm. They've had a committee looking at it for the past few months uh, and they come to the conclusion that they're going to stick with lockster <laughs> They're not going to make any changes whatsoever. Um, so the last time I think they looked at this was about a decade ago. Uh, and as we know, nothing's changed in the legal market since 2010, 2011. So I guess the the lightning speed of change at Debevoise means we might be in for an overhaul by 2030.
0: They might just put together another committee by that time do. to look at it. So. Um, who else who else has been reported
1: well again you have to take the longer view uh, for a lot of these firms and uh, bless them Cadwallader continues to struggle to take oh off oh my god look,
0: I cannot I can't keep up with Cadwallader they're up or down I don't where are they
1: it's, it's a roller coaster <laughs> that's what it is and they are sadly at the moment apparently on a downward run uh, but with, that means they'll go up <laughs> Because that's the way roller coasters work. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is kind of feast or famine with them, isn't it? It,
1: it is a little bit. And, you know, God bless them. They, uh, they generate a lot of stories over the years. But last year in London, capital revenue shrunk by about 4%. Uh, and that's negative revenue growth for the second year in a row. They lost partners as well. They lost a bunch of partners to Millbank in 2018. And it, it appears clear that they have issues there and getting stickiness. Um, They've tried to bounce back. They have recruited a few new partners last year, including funds partner Michael Newell from Norton Rose. Um, But um, the the long-term growth, that picture appears patchy.
0: Yeah. I mean, by the way, if anyone's listening from Cadwallader, we're not picking on you, I promise. You know, it can actually be tough to get sustainable growth in in London particularly actually if your head office in New York is you know has variable uh, emotional commitment to to growing overseas so um, it's actually interesting I think uh, to see how MoFo did this year because they are massively celebrating that they're up 25% in London but it is from a low base and if you look at over, over a longer period that is pretty stop and start as well so I mean their revenue has not even increased by half over a decade. Um, I mean, that hasn't been helped. You know, they lost five partners in 2015 when Cooley launched and so on. Um, so firms like MoFo and CAD actually have to really look externally for growth. Um, and MoFo have, you know, recently taken on partners from Latham and Curtin and Reed Smith. And, you know, they've seen that recovery uh, sort of built in. But it, but it is really all about whether you can get consistency. So, um on that note, which US firms really are doing well and have been motoring?
1: Yeah, uh, well, again, looking back, as you say, you know, the growth of, of MoFo over the last 10 years, you know, 50% up over a decade. I mean, a couple of the standout performers, you know, knocked that out of the park. So, Quinn Emanuel, mm. litigation boutique, mm. its London revenues has gone up by 113% over the last four years. Um, they, again, last year they were up double digits, so up 20% to 130 million, um, you know, continues to do very well. And Simpson Thatcher is the other one that I would say has had a, another good year in London.
0: Could you remind us of Quinn Emanuel's comedy profit margin? Their comedy profit margin
1: is around 75%, maybe 73%. <laughs> you bear sense.
0: in mind the sort of law firm standard is anywhere between sort of 25% uh, You'll the do well if you're about 40%. So the 40 yeah, percent is yeah. It's high, yeah, absolutely. Tell us a little bit more about Simpson. Um, uh, let's delve a little bit into how they have been getting on in the last couple of years.
1: Yeah, again, it's very lean, highly leveraged in, in, in parts of the business in terms of the numbers of associates to partners. And I think the funds team, it's around 10 or maybe a dozen, uh, which is one of the reasons why it generates so much income, but also is super profitable. It's super specialised, focused on funds, M&A, corporate um, and, of course, it has uh, a number of stonking clients, not least Blackstone, um, which has just set up this uh, huge infrastructure fund. And that's going to almost certainly going to generate huge opportunities um, for Simpson as, as they invest in the UK.
0: Yeah, I mean, they are going to be awash with deals over yeah. the next couple of years. Um, I just want to pick up on your leverage point, though, because you said like 10 to 12 associates to a partner. You know, that is ferociously lean. And actually, when you take also into account that Simpson outsources so much of its lower margin work, you know, what they would consider lower margin work, you know, pensions, real estate, a lot they work a lot with firms like Gowling and and so on. I mean, you're not comparing Light with Light with a lot of other firms in the market at all. And, you know, it doesn't have trainees. It it buys in talent at mid-associate level. And firms like Simpson love to talk about their loathing of bureaucracy, but actually, some of that bureaucracy is, is basic career overheads and structures, and that is completely absent there. Um, and that, so that model just is not available to other firms, not even other mm. American firms. Yeah,
1: actually. such as White & Case, yeah. uh, which is a full-service model in London. And the big story here is it was another one of those U.S. firms where the city revenue dropped. Which, putting
0: into context, though they they actually are pretty much the same size as McFarlands in London, right?
1: Absolutely. Over the last few years, it's been one of the strongest performers um, in amongst U.S. firms in London. Brought in a ton of laterals, ton of internal promotions, ton of big deals, not least acting for Saudi Aramco on its twenty-six billion listing.
0: Yeah, it's kind of it's interesting how they spun their results. I think Um, the London head basically blamed. global economic headwinds and
1: uh, <coughs> <Yes>. Brexit. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit Which lame, is, yeah. <laughs> it's a bit lame. And, uh, and actually, uh, it was kind of echoed by uh, Oliver Brettel, who used to be London Head, now is a member of the Global XCOM. Um, and he said that to, to go down by 4% is, quote, all things considered, fine. Uh, I, I found that quite amusing. I know when Mrs. Byrne uh, tells me everything's fine, I know there's a big problem. <laughs> <laughs> But
0: to be fair, actually, to be fair to White & Case, they're really still very much one of the big three of US firms in London, I mean, along with Latham and Kirkland. Um, I mean, they're not as profitable as either Latham or Kirkland, and they are nowhere near as profitable as Simpson, but they have achieved a level of success in London that was just not really on the cards a decade ago. Um, But all said and done, blaming Brexit, it's a bit weak, White & Case, you can do better than that. Now, the big breaking news this morning, and we're recording on the 27th of February, was that the Court of Appeal held that the third runway at Heathrow was unlawful and not compatible with the UK's commitment to reducing carbon emissions. Now, this is gonna be a case that will make the government reassess infrastructure and transport investment strategy, um, and uh, it's already causing an awful lot of comment. It's not going to be universally popular, to say the least. But dealing with climate change properly was probably going to make all of us have to go back to first principles, and the Heathrow case is uh, going to expose a lot of the corporate sustainability agenda. So talking of which, in very timely fashion, we actually have a big research report coming up, which is part of the Global Real Estate 50 report, uh, and it looks in detail at sustainability and client demand. Matt, what are General Counsel telling us about what law firms are doing and actually How do we define sustainability here anyway?
1: Okay, well, the most used term is ESG, uh, environmental, social and governance. And the exclusive research we've carried out for this year's Real Estate 50 report, I think really underlines that it's not now only just a a key boardroom agenda item for many clients. It is increasingly something by which they're measuring their law firms or, or are likely to be doing so over the next
0: years. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of firms are quite sceptical uh, about submitting diversity and pro bono stats now, um, you know, particularly on tenders and so on. It, yeah. You know, it takes a lot of work for them to come up with all of this information. And there's always been a very sort of sceptical assumption on the part of quite a lot of private, private practice firms is that they, you know, they present these gigantic documents mm. um, to uh, to the General counsel, and it just sort of sits unread in a cupboard, as it were. Do you get the sense, though, that, that things are different with the way that companies might want to use sustainable, the data on sustainability and so on, and actually the practices that law firms have?
1: I get the sense that it's really early days, and, uh, uh, but that it is a very live topic. And, and our interviews with some of the, the leading lawyers in the sector, both in private practice and in, uh, in-house, really under, underlines how important... A topic it really is. One GC told us, and I quote, we see this as a qualitative assessment. If a law firm takes its own sustainability responsibilities seriously, they're more likely to take ours seriously. And and this GC also said, we're actually in the process of updating our investment guidelines and processes to ensure they meet our ESG goals. The review is at an early stage, but once this has been completed, we will expect our advisors, legal and others, to align with our own ESG strategy. Mm. So it's pretty pretty stark there, uh, and in fact, we asked uh, clients whether they were also reviewing their policies, and an overwhelming majority, 73%, said they'd updated their ESG strategies over the last year, really recently. Mm. So, so I think this really underlines how much this has gone from uh, being something that people are aware of to top of clients' agendas over the last year or two. And, of course, that means law firms have to respond.
0: So so just to, again, to pick up again uh, what, what that GC said, they, they said they expected their advisors to align with their own ESG strategy is that just a one-off, or is this sort of a common response uh, amongst the, you know, the people that actually are that that, that we interviewed for this survey?
1: Extremely and surprisingly common. Seventy uh, percent said they agreed that their advisors should be aligned. Twenty-four percent of that seventy percent said strongly. So, in other words, clients are saying yes, absolutely, we're going to work with people who align with our strategies around ESG. And as I say, that's something that even twelve months ago was not as strong.
0: But this raises really interesting questions, doesn't it? Because because in order for that to happen, there has to be a dialogue, right? When you ask General Counsel how often they've been approached by law firms trying to understand what what their client's ESG goals were, what, what was the answer?
1: Well, this really gets to the nub of it. Are law firms acting on this? Are they responding? And the data that we've collected uh, that's in this report said, no, not yet. You know, the best way to test this is to ask the client. And the vast majority, 80% of the clients we surveyed said they had never been approached. Never been approached. Never, never. been approached. Well, or not even
0: sort of briefly over a lunch and a bit of a chat well, the, uh, at the I mean, coffee stage.
1: No, you could say it's not incumbent upon a law firm to do this, but equally they are forever banging their PR drum about how client-centric they are and how much they listen to their clients. This data seems to be telling a different story about what is undoubtedly one of the most significant issues, not just in the legal market, but in the world today. Mm. So the key message I think that runs through this year's report is that, yeah, real estate is a market that's going through enormous changes uh, and climate change in the ESG agenda is accelerating that change and it's absolutely vital that the leading firms are on top of those issues.
0: Absolutely, that's that's really interesting, and I, I, it's going to be interesting um, this time next year to see whether that's changed at all, and whether whether that dialogue between law firm and clients have actually sort of been put yep, into practice really. at all. Now, when is the report out?
1: The Lawyer Global Real Estate Fifty Report Cat is out on the 9th of March.
0: Is that right, Matt? Well, it's a must read. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Listen, uh, thank you very much. That's all from us today. From everyone here at The Lawyer, thank you for listening and see you next time.